Welcome, guys. Thanks for being with us. For folks who took a risk to peek in today, uh, you're new to us, we're new to you. Thanks for taking a risk to be with us. Uh, it's, it can be a nerve-wracking thing to walk into a church with God talkers, with a pastor opening up a Bible, uh, if that hasn't been a part of your experience. Uh, we hope you'll experience Jesus today. We're looking to Jesus in Matthew chapter 14. Matthew's over toward the right-hand side of your Bible. And as you're turning there, uh, we're asking ourselves continually as we look at Matthew's gospel, why does Jesus matter today? Why are we still talking about him 2,000 years later? Today, we're going to see that he offers us true heavenly satisfaction, true satisfaction. I wonder if you've ever imagined the joy of heaven, just sheer satisfaction in heaven. Some of our neighbors have, have thought about that themselves. And in uh, a Netflix series called The Good Place, they've envisioned heaven and a, a group of, of people who stumble together and eventually start to develop relationships and find themselves, a few of them, in the best part of The Good Place. It's a Netflix vision of heaven. Don't take your theology from it. I wouldn't. Uh, but a as you watch, they finally get to the best part of the good place, and they find there some of the people that they've always longed to meet. Chidi, who's there, I'm ringing a little bit here, but Chidi's a, a philosopher, uh, and so he looks up to philosophers. He hopes to meet philosophers in heaven, and his favorite philosopher was Hypatia of Alexandria, uh, who is played by Lisa Kudrow, if you remember Friends. And so Hypatia was this really wise, wonderful teacher from the ancient world in the fourth century in Egypt. And her teaching was said to surpass that of Aristotle and Plato. So an incredible early uh, female philosopher, a leader in the field. And she's there, but she's disappointing. Because when Chidi goes to say hi to her, she can't hardly form sentences. She's just slurping on a milkshake. And she can hardly even think straight anymore. And she finally says, we're in big trouble. And suddenly, Chidi and Eleanor, who's, who's with them, they realize, oh, something's wrong with the good place? What, what could be wrong? So Hypatia says, it's, it's because we've just been in getting what we want endlessly. And having what we want every day, we're bored with it. And we're just becoming you know, mind-numb uh, people who can't even think and have no purpose. We're just living every day like it's a party. And we would really kind of like an out. We'd like something else. And so in the show, they, they go to Janet, who's this sort of uh, supercomputer angel, and she makes a way out, uh, a way to death, actually. And to walk through this portal would be to walk into nothingness, oblivion. And so now there was, in The Good Place, in this Netflix vision of The Good Place, there was an opportunity to go on to what they viewed as the best ending, which was nothing. This is where many of our neighbors may be today. But I want you to note, in The Good Place, in Netflix's vision, there is no God. There's no God anywhere to be seen. Not even mentioned. And so what they're doing is they're trying to imagine heaven, eternal satisfaction apart from him. Now, I can imagine, and uh, I meant to give this earlier, but just as a warning, as we walk into the passage today, uh, it's dealing with some of the desires of the heart, particularly desires related to sex, as we look at Herod and the kinds of things that he used his wealth and his power to get for himself, the things that he wanted. 
So we'll be talking about those things, but there are many neighbors who believe that they could find satisfaction in the things of this world, particularly satisfaction in the things that power and wealth and sex can give you. And when they hear about a God, particularly the God of the Bible, saying that he has a good plan, that he, he shows a good way with power, we see a servant way in Jesus. He, he shows a good way with wealth, sharing and giving for the glory of God, the good of our neighbor, the needs of our family, the enjoyment of God's creation. Many of our neighbors, when we think about the vision of heaven that the Bible presents, it's, it's honestly a scary vision because eternal joy is with a God who says the things that they want in this life are not going to be in heaven. The things that they want will not be there. Their ways of using power, their ways of living their life, their desires for their sexuality will not be in heaven. And that's painful and offensive to imagine. And, and for them, it might seem better to have an eternity of becoming nothing. There's an irony to that, though, and we'll get there. But the Bible actually speaks to such a person, and it, it's going to be offensive. The Bible speaks to such a person in like Psalm 14, for example, verse 1. It's a song that God's people would sing. And their song went like this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says there is no God. Why? They're corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. It may sound like a harsh word to some of us, but think about this for a moment. Many of us think uh, that uh, we can be objective, and those who believe in God are just stuck in this sort of subjective belief that they want to be true. But the reality is that we all want things. The thing is, are those things good things? Are those things the sort of things that would satisfy us forever? Are they the sort of things like Herod that we're going to see would desire? Another thing to notice about Psalm 14 where it says the, the fool says in his heart there is no God is this is a, a person who would be worshiping with the congregation of Israel, most likely. A person who decides after hearing God's word, he doesn't want anything to do with it because it keeps him from having what he wants, but he's still going to stay connected so he can maybe have a hope in heaven hope of some sort of afterlife, but he's not going to have anything to do with uh, the ways of this God. And that's actually Herod. Herod is, he's benefiting from uh, being an Israelite. He's benefiting from having uh, a relationship with Judaism so that he can quote some scripture at convenient moments so that the people will be satisfied that he can be their ruler. But honestly, for him, he hopes that there really isn't a God because he wants to live however he wants to live. He wants whatever benefits come from relating to this religion without actually tasting and seeing the central goodness of it. And this is when Jesus shows up on the scene is in relation to Herod in this chapter. Chapter 14, verse 1, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. Now, Herod, he is the son of Herod the Great. He's the second Herod uh, who's a son of Herod the Great to be a king in Israel. Now, Herod the Great, when he hears about other folks who might get in his way, he doesn't care about what God's word says. He, he claims to be a Jewish person. He claims to hold to the scriptures of the Old Testament, which say, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay, thou shalt not kill. There are laws for how a king should be, someone who delights in the word of God and seeks to live it out, seeks justice for his people. But nevertheless, when he hears about a king who might threaten him, 
What did Herod the Great do? He had all of the boys under two years old killed in Bethlehem. So you can imagine, what is Herod Antipas, his son, going to do? Well, Herod the Great's response was tempered because his eldest son, Archelaus, who we read briefly about in Matthew chapter 2, when he was king, he was so hard on the people and also cared so little for the ways of their people. He lived just in the ways of the Romans. He committed all sorts of sacrilege against the temple. And so the Jews actually went to Rome and said, can you just get rid of this guy? He's terrible. We can't serve this man. He's awful to us. He's not fit to be a king over us. And so Rome actually removed him because they just want peace. And so Antipas remembers what happens to his older brother. He wants to kill John, we're going to find out in the immediate context. But think about this. He's hearing about Jesus. And so this whole episode that we're going to hear about is going to first shadow what's eventually going to be happening to Jesus. So verse 2, he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Why, why does he have this superstition? It's because Herod, verse 3, had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. So Herod, he was married. He married a neighboring king's uh, daughter, a princess, and he divorced her just because he wanted his brother's wife. Think about that. Think about the damage. You who uh, are, are blessed to have extended families, imagine taking your brother's wife. Well, he has the power, the clout, he has something that apparently his brother's wife wanted, and so she would take advantage. You can see from this passage that she's a bit of a conniving woman. He makes her his own, and John the baptizer, who loves the Lord and follows his word, says it's not lawful for you to have her. He's, he's alluding to Leviticus 18 and 20, both of which say that it is unlawful to lie with a near relative who's not your wife. It says to... Lie down with your brother's wife is to uncover his nakedness. It's as though you were laying with your brother himself. It's twisted. It's wrong. It's destructive. But Herod wanted what he wanted, and so he got what he wanted. But in this case, he wants to put, the, put this man to death for saying what he said. He wants to put John to death because he questioned him in his choice. But he feared the people because remember what happened to his brother. They held John to be a prophet. So Jesus is coming into this world, this very real world, where people want what they want apart from God, where there are fools like Herod, who can act as though they pretend they love God, but ultimately they want their, what they want. And he even comes in the world of, of faltering people who think that they want what Herod has, <laughs> because they don't know what true joy is. Well, we're going to think about this as we look in this passage. There's going to be two feasts, two pictures of heavenly satisfaction, and we're going to just ask, which do you want? But I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll dive into verse 6. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, today we're going to tread on some soil that's very, very difficult. We're going to be in, in the neighborhood of the hearts of people 
So I pray that you would be tender with them. You'd help me to be as tender as I can while being as true to your word as I can. Just come, Holy Spirit, and minister to us the beauty of Jesus. He's the one we're looking to. Amen. Amen. Verse 6. So the first feast we see is the Feast of Herod, this heavenly vision. This is, this is what heaven would be to a lot of people. Think about this. This is like the party. If you're, if you're a teenager, you're here today. You know, some of you have been given pictures. Maybe you've, you've watched enough movies. You know, I watched these kind of movies when I was growing up. I didn't always tell my parents about it, which wasn't wise, but uh, I would watch movies I shouldn't watch, which show a party life that was like the heaven that you should want when you're a teenager. All of these things are available to you. If you sneak out and you get to go to this party that has all of the stuff, it's probably the kind of party that's gonna get the police called on them, right? And you wanna be there so you can be with those people. You can have that relational capital with those people. It's something, who knows? The girl might be there, the guy might be there. And so you may want to dip your toe in that. And some of us may want to dip our toe in this kind of Herodian feast that we see before us today. We might want to get out of it what he's offering. And that's what he was there to do. The word give is repeated both in this passage and in the next with respect to the feeding of the 5,000. Six times we're going to see it in verse 7, 8, 9, 11, and 19. So what do you get? What is given here? And will it satisfy you? That's sort of uh, an implied question as we read this passage. And honestly, as a parent, that might be a good question for you whenever your young one uh, goes wherever they go, whenever your husband stays out late, goes to be with certain people. What did you get out of that? Did it satisfy you? Did it give you what you expected? This passage invites us to ask that kind of a question. Well, Herod's feast, it'll offer you dancing. That's the first thing we see, verse 6. Hey, dancing is a good thing, by the way. It's a biblical thing. But not this way. When Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Now, verse 7 leads me to think that this party has certain substances that inhibit your ability to make good decisions about uh, the consequences of your actions, because he makes an oath that's a really dumb oath. He promises her he'll do whatever she would ask him. But think about the sordidness, the vileness of this. The daughter of Herodias danced before the whole company and pleased Herod. Herodias is his brother's wife. This is his niece and now his stepdaughter. You know, talk about a creepy uncle. But pausing for a moment, men particularly, do we want to be at this feast? Powerful men taking advantage of young women with their eyes and hands? Do we want this feast? This is essentially what uh, the pornography industry has been doing for decades. It's as pervasive as it's ever been taking advantage of young girls, someone's daughter, misusing her. And young ladies, 
There are some who are even trained, like the daughter of Herodias. Herodias' mother put her up to this, we're going to find in the next verses. There are daughters who are mentored to misuse their bodies, to get from men what they can. If you come out okay on the other side, if you're alive, well, maybe you'll be ahead. Maybe if you get in with the right people, you can use your body to get ahead. But what if there is a different kind of party? What if, what if there's a better way to dance? What if there's at least one man in the world, just one in the universe, who would look upon you with dignity, would see you as a human being, would welcome you to himself, and would never take advantage of you for a moment? sees you as a daughter of God, sees purpose for you. And then what if you remembered that there is a God? The fool says in his heart, there is no God when he wants to take advantage of a young woman with his eyes or his hands. There is hope in Jesus for sinner and sinned against. You remember the woman caught in adultery she had sinned. She had harmed by committing adultery. And all the religious people were lining up to stone her. And Jesus surprisingly stands between them and defends her. He says, let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. But then, when everybody goes away, he says, look, daughter, who is there to condemn you? And neither will I condemn you, but go. Go. And sin no more. Imagine there could be a deeper satisfaction. Imagine that heaven could be better than what's promised in the 45 minutes of, of adulterous sex with someone. Imagine heaven could be deeper and wider and truer. There's a better way to dance. There's a better way to feast. Well, Herod will give you a sort of dance. He'll give you gifts, too. When, when his uh, uh, niece asked for what uh, she asked for, prompted by her mother, uh, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Gory, awful, vile. I tried to find a good picture, and Googling this, you, you, it's, it's, uh, it's intense, it's grotesque. In verse 9, the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. Now, I, I imagine this sort of like a sorry, not sorry sort of situation. He had just said he wanted to kill John. John had told him, what you're doing is wrong. He was angered to the point of wanting to kill him. The only thing that held him back was his fear of the crowds. But now he has his opportunity. So he's a little bit sorry. Maybe there's a tiny bit of conscience left within him. But because of his oaths that he made to this young woman and because of the guests, he, he can't show his guests a weak side. He has to prove to them how strong he is. He commands that it should be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter, given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. So there are gifts given. There's the gift of vengeance and violence and it works out if you hate the same people. Just in brief, just because this is in a, a context of political power, and some of you have more exposure to those groups directly. Many of you have exposure to groups with political power through media that you consume. But I invite you to beware 
of the motivations that those dinner guests who were there might have had, who were glad that John the baptizer was dead because they hated him too. Sometimes we want to be at Herod's feast. We want to be at the feast of the powerful. We want to support a person because they hate the person that we hate. Be careful with that. You may find yourself laughing at utter wickedness, delighting in something that is hellish. We can see in all these things that there are good desires at play here. You know, food is good. Birthdays are good. Coming together is good, right? Dancing is a good thing. Enjoying one another. Even enjoying a, a, a person's body in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. It's good. It is good. Two friends enjoying a hug can be such a good thing. But then these things can be bent. And because we want what we want, we, we can become, as humans, defenders of ourselves to the point of rage like Herod's. Our desire to be included could lead to laughing at utter wickedness. It's good to be a part of a group. Some groups just aren't worth it. So Herod is offering a heaven. We should see that. He's offering a vision of heaven here to his guests. But it's really, it's, it's hell masquerading as the good place. And what do you get? If you were to ask somebody who came home from Herod's party, what'd you get? Well, we got a little bit of brief satisfaction but it was only for a few. A moment of satisfaction for a few people. That's what Herod's party promises. But notice that his party promises grief for many others, but they don't care. So John's disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. I remember this story is, is bookended with Jesus. Herod has heard about the fame of Jesus, he thought it was John the baptizer, and, and Matthew digresses to tell the story of how Herod dealt with John. But Jesus hears about John, and when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. You can imagine, he's, he's friends from birth with John, and having his best friend killed was no doubt grievous. He wants to be alone. Maybe you've been in that place recently. You've been grieving. You wanted to be alone. Could you imagine if you had thousands of people knock at your door and ask for help on that day? God, you know, what would you do? Uh, give me a minute? You know, can't you see I could really use a moment to myself? I really need this time. Please leave me alone. Go somewhere else. But that's not Jesus. Do you see him here? The crowds come to him. And he offers them what they need. He offers them true satisfaction. So, so what happens at Jesus' feast that we're going to see in the ensuing verses? We see a different relationship to crowds. That's the first thing. Remember Herod? He was afraid of the crowd. How did Jesus feel toward the crowd, even on that day of grief? When the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. He, he felt from his guts a deep well of mercy and compassion. He would bless them. 
This host wasn't concerned with his own reputation, but with blessing people who came to him, even on his own worst day. And then it was evening. So imagine a whole day of people coming to you, because there are thousands of people with needs. He's worn out. The disciples have not prepared for a feast. This was a bring-your-own-lunch kind of deal. But then, at the end of the night, they tell Jesus to send people away. It's a desolate place. They need to go and get some food. And Jesus says in verse 16, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Here we see another thing that's different about Jesus' feast. Not only does he welcome the crowds, this is a non exclusive party. Everyone's welcome to come and receive his compassion. Not only that, but we see that at his party, the guests have a different relationship to the hosts. Those who had been invited to follow Jesus, the disciples, they weren't like those at Herod's party. At Herod's party, they were consumers. They came and they ate great steak, probably. They drank wine, the best of wine. They enjoyed this illicit dancing together. They laughed at whatever Herod said to make him feel good about himself. But at Jesus's feast, the disciples serve. You give them something to eat. Jesus has a different way. Heaven is different than the vision that we have here in Herod's feast. Jesus says to his disciples later on, you know that the Gentiles lord over one another and they're, they're rulers. They exercise authority over one another. But it will not be that way with you. Rather, the one who would be greatest among you must become last. The first must become last. And in fact, if you would be greatest, you must become slave of all. Because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is the pattern. I came to seek and to save you, Jesus says. I came to lay down my life for you. And true satisfaction is found not just in consumption of goods, certainly not in consuming people. It's found in serving people for the glory of God. This is what Jesus came to do. And so disciples will have a different way of relating at this feast you give them something to eat, Jesus says. But that command is impossible because they don't have what they need. They weren't prepared. They didn't know they were going to have to have a feast ready. So they tell Jesus, you know, um, we've only got these five loaves and these two fish. And, and from one of the other gospels, we know they received those from a, a boy who brought that with him. I've wondered at times, just knowing the disciples, I, I hope they didn't like beat up the boy to take his lunch, you know? Like, we got this, Jesus, you know? I hope that wasn't the case. But however it happened, they got this lunch, and Jesus takes it. This is all we have. What does he say in verse 18? Bring them here to me. And here's the fundamental difference between the Feast of Herod and the Feast of Jesus, between the satisfaction of heaven and the satisfaction of Herod's feast. Jesus is here. And he can take a little. He can take not enough. And he can make it plenty. He can take a plain meal, bread and fish. 
and he can make it satisfy your soul because he's the Lord of heaven and earth. And what ensues, we're going to see a miracle. There were many in the 19th and 20th century who, who tried to, they called demythologize the scriptures and would try to find a way to read the scriptures in a way that was explainable on human terms. It's just ridiculous to do that, at the very least to this passage. Let's start there. All four of the Gospels contain this story, all four of them pointing to Jesus as Lord of heaven and earth, the one with the power of the creator to call into being that which is not there. He says bread and there's bread. He says fish and fish abound. Herod, who thinks he's so great and so powerful, he thinks he can promise you so much with his wealth and his party. But Jesus, he has infinite power to truly satisfy you, not just for the moment that will leave you feeling empty, but forever, filling you up to overflowing. So they bring these loaves and fish to Jesus, and he orders the crowd to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Think about this moment. Matthew's intentionally pointing this out to us. The other gospels do similarly. They, he's intentionally re rehearsing this in the same way as Jesus at the Last Supper. Jesus took the loaves. He blessed the loaves. He broke the loaves and he gave the loaves to the disciples. And they all were satisfied. And Jesus tells us at the Last Supper in Matthew 26 that he won't enjoy this supper again. He won't drink of the fruit of the vine again until he drinks it anew with you in the kingdom of his Father forever and ever. So what we see here is a first tasting of heavenly delight. We see a first taste of what it's like to be satisfied in the presence of God and Jesus. All ate and were satisfied. There was no mention of satisfaction at Herod's feast. They took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. This is an overabundance and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So what do you get out of Jesus' feast? You get a bottomless well of joy, enough for all who would come. But do you want this? I think of the end of The Good Place, and uh, I apologize for the earlier spoilers, but uh, yet another spoiler. At the end of The Good Place, Chidi, who's in love with Eleanor, he is tasked with making the good place even better, and he had introduced death to do that, so take that as you will. And now they all feel like they have meaning in the show. It's actually really well written and great characters, but it just makes me sad, some of the suppositions they have. But as he's there in the good place, and as he's living out his days with Eleanor, he searches for truth as he would, he's a philosopher, and he, he jots down in his notes, there is no answer, but Eleanor is the answer. He was confounded looking for answers and meaning. He couldn't find anything, but he knew that this thing that he had next to him, Eleanor, she was wonderful. She is the answer, she was his joy. But the irony that we find is that she was not enough. 
He had a relationship that was so satisfying, and God made us for relationships. It's not good for a man to be alone. But even those relationships would not last forever with delight. Eons go by, and he needs something else. That well ran dry, and Chidi chose to walk through that portal to nothingness. Do you see that terrible irony? What I think you might see, if we consider the heaven that the scriptures present, that Jesus talks about, is that Christianity is not telling you to lay behind your greatest love and your deepest soul satisfaction. Christianity is inviting you to find it. To recognize that even the greatest good that you could possibly take hold of in this world, at some point it'll fail. And it's not enough to orient your entire life around for eternity. At some point you'll get bored with it. I can't imagine getting bored of Christina. I love her. But she was not made to be my eternal delight. Marriage is a picture. It's a picture of, of Christ's love for the church. It's ultimately that marriage, that eternity with God, that will give us soul satisfaction. Relationship, sexuality here on earth will not. It'll give you 45 minutes of fame and excitement, and then it'll end. Do you want to know this love, this eternal, infinite, unchangeable love? Do you want to know never-ending, boundless satisfaction? A God who forgives you, a God who loves you, a God who would give you purpose and call you to share heaven even where you are. Jesus matters today because he offers true heavenly satisfaction and if you would taste that, if you would take hold of that, I invite you first to just learn from the crowds and come to Jesus with all of your need, with all of your sin, with all of your presupposition that Jesus wouldn't let you come to him. Let him surprise you. You may be the sinner, the sinned against, the abuser, the abused. Jesus would invite you to come to him. <laughs> and he would say, go and sin no more but neither do I condemn you. He came to die for such as you. This is offensive to our world, but it's heaven on earth. You can receive his compassion. You can receive his healing now and in eternity. A community where people aren't just like the guests at Herod's party trying to consume one another, trying to get to the top, but a community where we're learning in Jesus to lay our lives down for one another. We don't care about status, being seen, being better, being more. Jesus must become more. I must become less. And there is joy. Secondly, if you would, if you would taste this satisfaction, this heavenly satisfaction, we learn in Jesus that we, we're called to serve. And, and very specifically, hospitality. God is showing hospitality through Jesus to the world in this moment. He's offering food, simple, simple goodness in food. 
Many of us love this. Many of us uh, had, had parents who, who passed this down to us. We've learned hospitality. Some of us haven't learned to open our home, our apartment, the place we live. We haven't learned to open that up. And, and some of us don't have the means to do that a lot. We don't have Herodian power and capital to, to offer a big feast. But if you, if you had $8 a month left over that you could put toward hospitality, you could get a lot of ramen. And it's simple. But you can sit and share space with someone that the Lord loves, and you can communicate that love to them. You can tell them that I'm just trying to do the sort of thing that my Savior did for me. Even in these small, ordinary moments, we can find true soul satisfaction and even no heaven on earth. Jesus being with us, buying a couple apples and going for a walk. And if you have nothing, come to me. I don't need to share broadly your situation, but I'll give you a gift card. You can take somebody for, for a meal. We want you to share in that dignity and that purpose to you go and give them something to eat. You're a disciple of Jesus. You're not a consumer. You're not here just to enjoy a salty meal and laugh at somebody's jokes. You're here. You're here to taste heaven and to share heaven with your neighbors. And so I hope you'll taste and see. I hope you'll see Jesus is a better way than this world, that he actually offers true soul delight that will never end. If you'd risk it, I hope you'd look to him because he matters today. He would offer you true heavenly satisfaction. Father, thank you for this hope, this purpose. I hope that you'll help us to take hold of it, Lord. I hope you'll help us to hear our neighbors who, who are troubled with what we believe about heaven. But help us to offer all of your goodness in return. Good food, true truth, offered with grace. Lord, thank you that you extended this grace to us. We don't deserve it. Let us never forget that. In Jesus' name, amen.